Welcome back, folks, to episode 46 of the Running Man Self-Regulation Skill and Self-Improvement Project podcast with me, your host, Dr. Armando Dominguez, PhD in health psychology, licensed professional counselor, and an adjunct professor at a local community college. And what we're going to be discussing today is going to be the anthematic side of self-image and ego. We're going to be discussing the power of self-image today and how we hold ourselves relative to how we make goals happen, if we can make goals happen, and what the role of how I see myself, the belief I have of myself, in myself, about myself, whenever I'm trying to get things done and accomplish goals. And we will launch from that point. So, self-image. Up until now, my podcast has taken the ego and the idea of ego to task and poor little dude or dudette, whichever side of the line you might stand on. Um, Our egos have been assailed with this principle that it is merely a figment of our imagination. It is a making of our mind. It is something that we entertain in the theater of our mind, the mind's eye, so to speak. And for those of y'all that listen to episode 45 about aphantasia, those can't visualize within their minds, even you have an idea as to what that sense of self is. So why am I going to be looking at the power of self-image? And what it can do for us, not only in my life, how I show up and how I present myself, but also the goals the that I'm trying to accomplish, how I show up, how I see myself, and how I present myself, even whenever I have no skill in whatever goal I'm trying to accomplish. And even though maybe I've been at it for a time, there's a measure of respect that goes on with the image of the individual I see myself as, the way I show up my presence whenever I'm about to undertake the work, the ethic, the effort to move those steps forward in the direction of the goal that I've set out. We discussed starting a goal, starting a worthy goal, a goal with heart. Like um, Carlos Castaneda said, having a path with heart, whenever we have that, we've essentially seen a mental picture or have an idea of what we want to accomplish, and then setting foot and and going. The journey of a thousand miles, starting with that one step. This begins with the ideation of starting with the end in mind, having a well-formed idea, a picture, a clear idea of what the goal is going to look like. Now, this is a forward projection in mental time, so to speak, but also one that we'd like to shore up by making the picture real. Often, whenever we talk about journaling or writing things down as goals, these are really, really important tools that I didn't really take the fullest use of until later in my life, when I was probably in my late 20s, early 30s. And I realized whenever I was writing things down, they became my goal orientation and realizing I wasn't just talking about my feelings or my thoughts or what I liked, but I was writing things down in depth, but also with that sense of, I want this. I want to accomplish this or seeing the goal of my ideations of what, for instance, my martial art was going to look like whenever I became more skilled and gained more information that would make me more well-rounded, so to speak, even uh, becoming a psychologist. Whenever I started writing down what my goals were, they became very stepwise and it was just a matter of realizing what the steps were from the point I was at to the goal I wanted to get to. So 
the writing things down actually makes whatever those ideations, those thoughts, those ideas that you might have with those feelings, and we make them real by putting them on paper, whether it be a pencil or pen. I like to have a journal that's strictly uh, blank white, no lines with uh, black ink. I am not abhorrent, but I'm not really fond of blue ink. Even though blue is my favorite color, uh, I don't like it as ink. It feels kind of wonky to me, but black does it for me. And um, I usually like a bold print. The gel riders that I get are, and I'm not plugging them, but uh, are the Pilot G2s, but the 1.0s. Because the fine points, they, they just don't do it for me. They don't flow as well. But even down to the feeling that I get whenever I'm writing my things down uh, have a lot to do with how I imagine. Because those are small controls. Those are small steps that give us a sense of, okay, I can do this. They're small steps of quality as much as quantity, the practice, that has to do with getting closer to that goal that I'm trying to achieve. There is a bit of a difference uh, keyboarding and doing notes that way, and that works fine if that's something that you're inclined to. But for me, the visceral quality of writing and actually putting things down makes it a little more personal for me. And I can carry it with me and open that up and and reiterate what I'm doing, rewrite it, or even reread it and get a feel for what it is that I just put down and get some thought and feeling to it after the fact. And you can do it with computer as well, but uh, uh, I'm digressing a bit. But the point is being able to physically make those words on paper the first manifestation of that process of getting to the goal and making the goal real, making that picture that you've thought of or created in your mind. And the first step, making it real, is writing it down. Just like whenever you go to the grocery store and you have a little sticky note that says, kind of like in Sesame Street when I was a kid, I need a loaf of bread, a container of milk, and a stick of butter. Some of y'all may remember that, if y'all can think back that far. And uh, it's kind of a cute little thing that I saw when I was a kiddo. But having a note is a reminder. But also, we may have many notes, many reminders that tell us where to go, what to do, and what the goal is at the end of the day, the month, the week, the year, or the decade, if you have your goal set out in short, medium, and long term. And this is going to be the next thing we'll be discussing, is that whenever we do have a sense of gaining skill or goal, and there's a task practice, for instance, that we have assigned, or maybe we're running a length of uh, distance to train that we have so much time and we want to adjudicate how well we're doing, giving us a sense of beginning, middle, and end gives a sense not only a structure, but how to train. And this plays a large part in how our mind attenuates to the goal. It also gives us a sense of belief building Whenever I'm at the beginning of the race, if I'm running a two-mile race, for instance, or two-mile training drill to just increase cardio, I know that the first six to seven minutes, I'm going to be a little sluggish, a little slow, warm up. Then in the middle is going to be where I start hitting my hitting my pace, so to speak. And then in the third, I may be running out of fuel or feeling a little tired. I may have an expectation that just because I'm running a little past two miles, uh, two, towards two miles, um, that at the end of the two miles, I'll be a little more tired than I was when I started. So I have this differential that breeds a sense of assumed belief. But uh, even that can be changed wherever, not only through practice, but the way we look at it, maybe not paying attention to the miles of the time, but just knowing where the goal is 
and not weighing so much on how many kilometers or miles you're running or how many minutes you're running those steps or miles in and just doing it. And sometimes we lose our sense of time and then there's less pressure and therefore it might even become easier. And we may finish with a feeling of, wow, that was easy. I could have gone another two miles. And the belief can change, the belief can support, or the belief can actually limit you depending on how you step into it and how you step forward into that task. So this is an important thing relative to self-regulation because this is all self-regulation. Whenever you want to learn how to manage anxiety and depression, sometimes physical movement is one of the first things you should do because they have to do both of those states, anxiety and depression, with a survival sense. Am I overwhelmed? Do I feel powerless to change? those circumstances? And also, am I in fight flight and I feel in danger? Uh, can I do anything about it? And whenever we have those senses, one of the first things that speaks the language of the body and the first language of the body is motion, mind you, that tells us I can get away from consequence and circumstance. Is that or is that not a belief building feeling that occurs when we can walk away from an argument whenever we can walk away from a tense situation or we can read a situation using the tools we've been speaking of up until now as far as environmental awareness and uh, perception that can help us avoid things altogether whenever it just starts to peak. We don't have to walk into the meat grinder every time there's stress unless that's what you like to do. And I say that jokingly, but uh, that is part of the self-regulatory skill. If we're walking into the run, the idea is not to avoid it. If we know it's going to help us get to the goal of having better cardio, maybe we want to lose weight or be able to run a race of 5k with the group, this sort of thing, whatever that end outcome is that has weight and meaning to us, keeping that in mind and knowing that by doing this, we'll get there, that connects that long-distance goal with the immediate goal of this is a short-term goal, but this is one of many I will do. And it becomes easier because we're tying it to something of higher value versus just making some effort with no goal in mind other than I feel like I got to do this. And it's obligatory, and we may look at it in a negative sense. Notice the negativity is also a belief structure. So how we enter into it and how we tie it to the goal is very important too. Now, the next part, I want to actually mention a couple of books that I've been studying. And uh, one of these is uh, a martial arts book called Martial Arts and the Mirror Image. It was written by Philip Starr. He is the grandmaster of uh, Yili Shuan Kung Fu, and he's out of Nebraska, and he is my teacher's teacher. But he's a prolific writer, an amazing martial arts writer with uh, great clarity and detail. He writes not only the methodology of how to strike and kick, this sort of thing, in some of his other books, but in Martial Arts and Mirror Image, he actually mentions much of the mind training that I was learning under my teacher that he'd learned from him. And... Looking back, I realized that even though we're training punch, kick, throw, this sort of thing, self-defense stuff, yada, yada, all of that stuff, and I'm not minimizing that, but it's all very mind-based, and it all involved the mind, and the mind was such a big part of it, and it wasn't just believe what I tell you and do what I say, because it was never taught to me that way, but rather all of this was an integrated, the mind plays a role in how the body moves, and how the body moves is a result of how we believe or how we think. And it's just a very useful 
book in the sense that there are a number of things that he mentions, but he does mention belief and showing up and also being aware of things. And this isn't getting woo-woo in the sense of all the energy stuff that people get all uncomfortable with, even though uh, much of that is in there and he does teach it. Um, I will say this all very practical and not counter psychology. It's actually, um, in my estimation, probably the earliest uh, psychology uh, second only to Patanjali of yoga and uh, the eight sutras that taught how to be psychologically. But the reason I like his book is that he speaks in principles and gives examples. But one of the first things that he mentions, that is the honey of what's going on now with psychology. And now that we have fMRI imaging and stuff like that, it has to do with changing mind by changing the body first. He started the body by teaching the body self-regulatory skills, how to manage stress, how to train the body, even though maybe I have an outcome in mind that is less than desirable, but changing the mind by changing the body versus separating it and thinking that positively thinking or thinking in certain ways is going to change what the body does. And it can, once you've gained momentum and gaining trust between your conscious mind, your subconscious mind, and also what your ideations are with your body. And knowing that the body, whenever you hold yourself in regard and show up, and respect yourself in the sense of how your self-image is when you go to a task, even if you have no skill, even if you're at the level of uh, conscious incompetence, that's okay. You don't have to have skill to do things with intention and gusto with a sense of, I'm going to get something positive, something useful that's a benefit to me. So his book is really, really worth looking into, even if you're not a martial artist. But if you're into sports or athletics, it's something that could benefit you as well. It is definitely something that even those high-end sports psychologists that professional football teams and basketball teams hire, these are things that I was very lucky to have been privileged to learn some of whenever I was learning. And it's something that's never left me. And I continue to use those and even teach my sons as I teach them. And it makes them perform better in whatever it is that they like to do. And even though it came through the martial arts for me, it's also been something that has shaped how my life has gone and how I create goals and have become a professional uh, in the psychological field because of what I've learned in that martial art. And just a little self-disclosure, when I got into psychology, uh, my goal, and I'm, I'm a bit of a <laughs> one-shot pony, I guess, and I laugh at myself because I've gained profession out of it, and I'm really happy. Uh, but I really want to get into psychology to make my kung fu better. And even though that sounds a little backwards, it's really not, because in principle, I was using my mind to improve my body, but at the same time, improving my body by way of my martial art helped me improve my mind, not only in discipline, but also in being able to shape my thoughts and ideations in the direction that I want to go. So it's definitely helped me in that sense, and that's just my personal experience. Now, the next book that I wanted to mention was written by a professor, uh, Ellen J. Langer. It's called The Mindful Body. Thinking Our Way to Chronic Health, which is a really awesome play on words. But what is one of the things that I would say that we do as humans, that we do every day, that regardless of what task we do, or what task we undertake, rather, and whatever we achieve, and, and that's how we think of the things that we're going to do. So the chronicity of our thinking can be part of the chronicity of our health. 
And we do know that there is such a thing as mind-body connection. It's not a separate, it's not a dichotomy. There's a mind and body thing. There's a connection. And and science has proven that. And in support of what the martial arts have been doing, meditators and the yogis have been telling us for eons, we've got it mapped. Now, what's really fascinating is the fact that how we think affects our health. Now, there is a field of psychology called psychoneuroimmunology, and it's a phenomenal field, been around about 35 years in its early inception. Now, with fMRI, we have a whole lot of mapping going on as to what's happening and where it's happening and how the body is metabolizing blood sugar at those areas that we're saying that feelings occur and thoughts occur and we still can't map consciousness, mind you, but it's really exciting to know that uh, we do not just use 10% of our brain, the old myth. We use all of it, and we use it continuously. We just use other parts more frequently, and uh, that is something that's worth noting. Now, what I found useful about her book is the fact that uh, there have been many studies having to do with visual imagery also with belief, but also these things having to do with actually changing physical attributes of the body. One of the things I found really fascinating is that she mentioned that she cited as her own experience that she was wearing contacts and they were bothering her. And that at one point she had forgotten that she was wearing a contact at all, but yet she wanted to take it out because her eye was irritating her, but she was still able to see with that one contact that she was using kind of like a bifocal. And there are bifocal contacts and there is a monocular method of using a contact if you want to just use one eye for reading. And that is something that uh, I used to be very well aware of because I used to work as an optician selling glasses, making uh, glass lenses, grinding them and whatnot, and also selling contact lenses. So it was really cool to read in that book. But uh, she found out that without her worrying about it, she just kind of assumed that she'd be able to read at the binocular reading distance. And that would have been uh, about... 12 to 16 inches versus the the three-foot computer distance that's usually known for uh, typical uh, workspaces and also anything further that would be our long-distance vision. So she actually realized that she didn't go back to contacts because she didn't have to. She noted that just by suggestion that she had, expectation and assumption she had of herself, we'll call that a belief, Uh, She changed how her body was responding, so she was able to see better. Now, there are some instances where there are some physical things that prevent that or encourage that. And if you want to hear some really super normal things, Oliver Sacks and the man who mistook his wife for a hat, he writes about the one gentleman that had, unfortunately, a tumor that was pressing on his optic nerve that he was able to read a newspaper at about a half a block uh, across the street from his home from the front of his house to across the street. So there are some amazing things that can happen that, that have been reported. doesn't have to be because of illness and energy to do that, but our mind is amazing. But our body responds to what our mind tells us. And what is funny is that our body, our lower brain, our lower cerebellar qualities that occur at the preverbal, wordless mind level, that's also our believer. And our believer is simplistic, 
It's also a survival aspect that has no time to be ter- determining whether or not somebody's pulling the wool over its eyes or is it real. It's just determining things to be real as default because survival is fast and survival ain't pretty. And sometimes we have to err on the side of being wrong, but uh, I'd rather be wrong and alive than be right and be the bologna sandwich getting eaten by the tiger that was back there that I didn't see. So there's definitely some usefulness there. Now, some other things she mentioned was that there was this one study that was done, not unlike the basketball study where people were imagining shooting baskets and then they had a group that were shooting baskets only, no visualization, and those that were visualized only, and that all of those improved their skill. But the ones that were visualizing and not shooting baskets, they improved almost equivalent to what the persons were that were just shooting baskets. Of course, the people that did both the visualization and shot baskets did better, but they did the same thing on a smaller scale, working on finger strength, something that's very simple, practical, not very grandiose at all. But yet by virtue of the fact of imagining doing finger flexion exercises, the person was able to recruit more finger musculature, more digital musculature, and therefore was actually stronger than what they tested before with, with a dynamometer, which is rather fascinating too. So just by virtue of a simple fact that we have an exercise that we're doing with our mind that's not real in the sense of objective, I can knock on it and touch it on the outside of myself, but yet able to create a change or a shift in how my body responds, an improvement no less, in, in performance, muscular and neurological firing based on something that's not real? Well, what does that tell you? So psychosomatic illness? Definitely. What the subtitle of this book was, Thinking Our Way to Chronic Health, Psychosomatic Health, Building of Health, Psychosomatic Physical Improvement, Sports Improvement, Task Improvement, Enhancement, it's doable. Now, there have been some times that I have accomplished things and not anything particularly mis- mystical, mind you, but wherever my mind helped me do things that otherwise I would have thought unable to. Breaking boards is a big martial arts thing, of course, but uh, there are some times that I've been able to break more things board-wise um, with one hand, just holding multiple boards with little or no effort. And then there's other times where it took a little effort. Part of it had to do with how how I showed up in my mind and whether or not I respected the fact that not only was it real, but that I was also capable. And even though it may seem a trivial, trite thing, it may seem, seem like showing off to others, but what it is, it's really about, can I use my mind to get my body to do things that otherwise I would think myself unable to? And sometimes we'll stop ourselves. It may very well be within our realm and capacity to do, but yet somehow we lack that self-confidence. Maybe we have to start sometimes without that self-confidence and gain through gaining skill by the practice, and we'll get that. But there are times where we have the opportunity to do things and do things with what is called beginner's mind or the mind of a child. Not a childish mind, but the mind of a child in that it's all-embracing and it has no limits imposed upon it, so therefore... It moves as if, well, okay, tell me to do something and I'm going to do it. And there is no ego to it. There is no sense of loss. There's no sense of embarrassment. There's just a sense of, why not? Let's try. Looks fun, exciting. And sometimes that sense of adventure, wonder, 
is one of the things that can push us to the next level of whatever it is that we might want to do. So in closing, I just want to add that the mind plays a large role in how we do things, but also our ego, how we show up and how we believe ourselves to be. Our self-image in the sense of how we trade moment to moment, day to day, can be a very powerful thing. It can also get in our way. The idea is to know that it doesn't exist in a sense, in an objective sense that I can touch it and lift it, but yet it plays a very important role in how I see myself becoming and how I attach myself as far as arriving at those goals, lofty goals that maybe are long-term goals, who I'm going to become. And it's not so much that I'll be a different person per se, not unrecognizable. I'll still be me, but rather that's going to be the next evolution that I choose to become or arrive at. And this is my well wish to you telling you, I hope you reach your goals. I sincerely hope you share the goals that you get with me. I'd love to hear them. And I'd like to know what it is that you're accomplishing and wanting to get to. That fascinates me. I've shared some of mine. Maybe you'll share some with me. If you'd like to give me some feedback, the email is runningmangetskillsproject at gmail. Got it right that time. And also... I'm hoping that you have a good evening. Today's Monday, after work, chilling out a little bit. And I want to tell you thank you for sharing this time with me and listening. And share this podcast with people that you think might benefit. And I want to send my love out in all directions. And I want to tell you thank you once again, because this has been an insanely fun project for me. But I hope that you do decide to share and like, follow, and share. And if you know somebody that can benefit, give it to them. And if you know somebody that won't, give it to them too. And let's just say Santa Claus sent it. And I hope you do well. Take care. Walk well.